Welcome to the McDark Horror Series. Ed Cox was driving home from work in a rainstorm. While he waited for a traffic light to change, he saw a young woman standing alone at a bus stop. She had no umbrella and was soaking wet. Are you going towards Farmington? He called. Yes, I am. She said. Would you like a ride home? I would. She said. And she got in. My name is Joanna Finney. Thank you for rescuing me. I'm Ed Cox, he said. And you're welcome. On the way, they talked and talked. She told him about her family and her job, and where she had gone to school. And he told her about himself. By the time they got to her house, the rain had stopped. I'm glad it rained, Ed said. Would you like to go out tomorrow after work? I'd love to, Joanna said. She asked him to meet her at the bus stop, since it was near her office. They had such a good time. They went out many times after that. Always they would meet at the bus stop, and off they would go. Ed liked her more each time he saw her, but one night, when they had a date to go out, Joanna did not appear. Ed waited at the bus stop for almost an hour, Maybe something is wrong, he thought, and he drove to her house in Farmington. An older woman came to the door. I'm Ed Cox, he said. Maybe Joanna told you about me? I, I had a date with her tonight. We were supposed to meet at the bus stop near her office, but she didn't show up. Is she all right? The woman looked at him as if he had said something strange. I'm Joanna's mother, she said slowly. Joanna isn't here now, but why don't you come in? Ed pointed to a picture on the mantel. That looks just like her, he said. It did once, her mother replied. But that picture was taken when she was about your age, about twenty years ago. A few days later, she was waiting in the rain at that bus stop. A car hit her. She was killed. It was eleven o'clock at night. Peter Rothberg was in bed on the second floor of the old house where he lived alone. It had gotten so chilly, he went downstairs to turn up the heat. As Peter was on his way back to bed, a black dog ran down the stairs. It passed him and disappeared into the darkness. Where did you come from? Peter said. He had never seen the dog before. He turned on all the lights and looked in every room. He could not find the dog anywhere. He went outside and brought in the two watchdogs he kept in the backyard. 
but they acted as if they were the only dogs in the house. The next night, again at 11 o'clock, Peter was in his bedroom. He heard what sounded like a dog walking around in the room above him. He dashed upstairs and threw open the door. The room was empty. He looked under the bed. He looked in the closet. Nothing. But when he got back to his bedroom, he heard a dog running down the stairs. It was the black dog. He tried to follow it, but again he could not find where it had gone. From then on, every night at eleven, Peter heard the dog walking in the room above him. The room was always empty, but after he left, the dog would come out of hiding, run down the stairs, and disappear. One night, Peter's neighbor waited with him for the dog. At the usual time, they heard it above them. Then they heard it on the stairs. When they went out into the hall, it was standing at the foot of the stairs, looking up at them. The neighbor whistled, and the dog wagged its tail. Then it was gone. Things went on this way, until the night Peter decided to bring his watchdogs into the house again. Maybe this time they would find the black dog and drive it away. Just before eleven, he took them up to his bedroom and left the door open. Then he heard the black dog moving around above him. His dogs pricked up their ears and ran to the door. Suddenly they bared their teeth and snarled and backed away. Peter could not see the black dog or hear it, but he was sure that it had entered his room. His dogs barked and snapped. They darted forward nervously, then backed away again. Suddenly, one of them yelped. It began bleeding, then dropped to the floor, its neck torn open. A minute later, it was dead. Peter's other dog backed into a corner, whimpering. Then everything was still. The next night, Peter's neighbor came back with a pistol. Again, they waited in his bedroom. At eleven o'clock, the black dog came down the stairs. As before, it looked up at them and wagged its tail. When they started towards it with the pistol, it growled and disappeared. That was the last Peter saw of the black dog. But it did not mean the dog was gone. Now and then, always at eleven, he heard it moving around above him. Once he heard it running down the stairs. He never managed to see it again, but he knew that it was there. John Nicholas raised horses. He had many horses of all kinds, but his favorite was Bess, a gentle old mare he had grown up with. He no longer rode her, for all she could do now was just amble along. Bess spent her days grazing peacefully in a meadow. That summer, for the fun of it, John Nicholas went into a fortune teller's booth. The fortune teller studied her cards. I see danger ahead for you. She said. Your favorite horse will cause you to die. I don't know when, but it will happen. It is in the cards. John Nicholas laughed. The idea that Bess would cause his death was nonsense. She was as dangerous as a bowl of soup. Yet from then on, whenever he saw her, he remembered the fortune teller's warning. That fall, a farmer from the other end of the county asked if he could have Bess. He had been thinking that the old horse would be perfect for his children to ride. That's a good idea, John said. 
It would be fun for them. It would give Bess something to do. Later, John told his wife about it. Now Bess won't kill me, he said, and they both laughed. <laughs> a few months later, he saw the farmer who had taken her. How's my Bess? He asked. Oh, she was fine for a while, the farmer said. The children loved her. Then she got sick. I had to shoot her to put her out of her misery. It was a shame. Despite himself, John breathed a sigh of relief. He had often wondered if in some crazy way, through some strange accident, Bess would kill him. Now, of course, she could not. I'd like to see her, said John. Just to say goodbye, she was my favorite. The bones of the dead horse were in a far corner of the man's farm. John kneeled down and patted Bess's sun-bleached skull. Just then a rattlesnake, which had made its home inside the skull, sank its fangs into John Nicholas's arm, killed him. As Jim Brown lay dying, his wife left him with his nurse and went into the next room to rest. She sat in the dark staring into the night. Suddenly, Mrs. Brown saw headlights come rapidly up the driveway. Oh no, she thought. I don't want any visitors now. Not now. But it wasn't the car bringing a visitor. It was an old hearse with maybe a half a dozen small men hanging from the sides. At least that's what it looked like. The hearse screeched to a stop. The men jumped off and stared up at her, their eyes glowing with a soft yellow light, like cat's eyes. She watched with horror as they disappeared into the house. An instant later, they were back, lifting something into the hearse. Then... They drove off at high speed, wheels squealing, the gravel in the driveway flying in all directions. At that moment, the nurse came in to say that Jim Brand had died. George Flint loved to eat. Each day at noon, he closed his camera shop for two hours, went home for a big lunch his wife Mina cooked for him. George was a bully, and Mina was a timid woman who did everything he asked because she was afraid of him. On his way home for lunch one day, George stopped at the butcher shop, bought a pound of liver. He loved liver. He would have had Mina cook it for dinner that night. Despite all his complaints about her, she was a very good cook. While George ate his lunch, Mina told him that a rich old woman in town had died. Her body was in the church next door. It was in an open coffin. Anyone who wanted to see her could. As usual, George was not interested in what Mina had to say. I've got to go back to work, he told her. After he left, Mina began to cook the liver. She added vegetables and spices and simmered it all afternoon just the way George liked it. When she thought it was done, she cut off a small piece and tasted it. It was delicious. 
the best she had ever made. She ate a second piece, then a third. It was so good, she could not stop eating it. It was only when the liver was all gone that she thought of George. He would be coming home soon. What would he do when he found that she had eaten all the liver? Some men would laugh, but not George. He would be angry and mean. She did not want to face that again. But where could she get another piece of liver that late in the day? Then she remembered the old woman lying in the church next door, waiting to be buried. George said he'd never had a better dinner. Have some liver, Mina, he said. It's just delicious. I'm not hungry, she said. You finish it. That night after George had fallen asleep, Mina sat in bed trying to read. But all she could think about was what she had done. And then she thought she heard a woman's voice. asked. Who has it? Was it her imagination? Or was she dreaming? Now the voice was closer. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? Mina wanted to run. No, no. She whispered. I don't have it. I don't have your liver. Now the voice was right next to her. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has it? Mina froze with terror. She pointed to George. He does, she said. He has it. Suddenly, the light went out, and George screamed and screamed. Tom Connors was on his way to a dance in the next village. It was a long walk through fields and woods. But it was a sweet, soft evening, and he loved dancing, so Tom didn't mind. He had gone only a short distance when he noticed a young woman following him. Maybe she's going to the dance, he thought, and he stopped and waited for her. As the woman got closer, he saw that it was Kate Faherty. They had danced together many times. He was about to call, Hello, Kate, when suddenly he remembered that Kate was dead. She had died last year, yet there she was, all dressed up for the dance. Tom wanted to run, but somehow it didn't seem right to run from Kate. He turned and started to walk away as fast as he could, but Kate followed him. He took a shortcut across a field, but she still followed. When he got to the dance hall, she was right behind him. There were a lot of people standing outside, and Tom tried to lose Kate in the crowd. He worked his way to the side of the building and squeezed up against the wall behind some people, but Kate followed. She came so close she brushed up against him. Then she stopped and waited. He wanted to say, Hello, Kate, just the way he did when she was alive. 
but he was so frightened he couldn't speak. Her eyes looked into his eyes, and she vanished. Sam and his cousin Bob went walking in the woods. The only sounds were leaves rustling and now and again a bird chirping. It's so quiet here, Bob whispered. But that soon changed. After a few minutes, the two boys started whooping and hollering and chasing one another around. Sam ducked behind a tree. When Bob came by, Sam jumped out at him. Then Bob raced ahead and hid behind a bush. When he looked down there at his feet was an old drum. Sam, see what I found, he called. It looks like a tom-tom. I bet it's a hundred years old. Look, there's red stains on it, said Sam. I bet it's somebody's blood. Let's get out of here. But Bob could not resist trying the drum. He sat on the ground and held it between his legs. He beat on it with one hand, then the other, slowly at first, then faster and faster, almost as if he could not stop. Suddenly there were shouts in the woods and the sound of hoofbeats. The cloud of dust rose from behind a line of trees. Then men on horseback galloped towards them. Bob, let's go! Sam shouted. He began to run. Hurry! Bob dropped the drum and ran after him. Sam heard the twang of a bow firing an arrow. Then he heard Bob scream. When Sam turned, he saw Bob pitch forward, dead. But there was no arrow in his body, and there was no wound. When the police searched, there was no men on horseback, and there were no hoof prints, and there was no drum. The only sounds were leaves rustling and now and again a bird chirping. Liz was doing her homework at the dining room table. Her younger sister Sarah was asleep upstairs. Their mother was out, but she was expected back any minute. When the front door opened and shut, Liz called. Hello, Mama. But her mother didn't answer, and the footsteps Liz heard were heavier, like a man's. Who's there? She called. No one replied. She heard whoever it was walk through the living room, then up the stairs to the second floor. The footsteps moved from one bedroom to another. Again, Liz called. Who's there? The footsteps stopped. Then she thought. Oh my God. Sarah is in her bedroom. She ran upstairs to Sarah's room. Only Sarah was there, and she was asleep. Liz looked in the other rooms, but found no one. She went back to the dining room, scared out of her wits. Soon she heard footsteps again. They were coming down the stairs, into the living room. Now they went into the kitchen. 
Then the door between the kitchen and the dining room slowly began to open. Get out! Liz screamed. The door slowly closed. The footsteps moved out of the kitchen, through the living room towards the front door. The door opened and shut. Liz ran to the window to see who it was. No one was in sight, nor were there any footprints in the fresh snow that had been falling. When it got hot in the valley, Thomas and Alfred drove their cows up to a cool green pasture in the mountains to graze. Usually they stayed there with the cows for two months. Then they brought them down to the valley again. The work was easy enough, but, oh, it was boring. All day the two men tended their cows. At night they went back to the tiny hut where they had lived. They ate supper and worked in the garden and went to sleep. It was always the same. Then Thomas had an idea that changed everything. Let's make a doll the size of a man, he said. It would be fun to make. We could put it in the garden and scare away the birds. It should look like Harold, Alfred said. Harold was a farmer they both hated. They made the doll out of old sacks stuffed with straw. They gave it a pointy nose like Harold's and tiny eyes like his. Then they added dark hair and a twisted frown. Of course, they also gave it Harold's name. Each morning on their way to the pasture, they tied Harold to a pole in the garden to scare away the birds. Each night, they brought him inside so he wouldn't get ruined if it rained. When they were feeling playful, they would talk to him. One of them might say, How are the vegetables growing today, Harold? Then the other, making believe he was Harold, would answer in a crazy voice, Very slowly. They both would laugh, but not Harold. Whenever something went wrong, they took it out on Harold. They would curse at him even kick him or punch him. Sometimes one of them would take the food they were eating, which they were both sick of, and smear it on the doll's face. How do you like that stew, Harold? He would ask. Well, you'd better eat it or else. Then the two men would howl with laughter. One night after Thomas had wiped Harold's face with food, Harold grunted. Did you hear that? Alfred asked. It was Harold, Thomas said. I was watching him when it happened. I can't believe it. How could he grunt? Alfred asked. He's just a sack of straw. It's not possible. Let's throw him in the fire, said Thomas. And that will be that. Let's not do anything stupid, said Alfred. We don't know what's going on. When we move the cows down, we'll leave him behind. For now, let's just keep an eye on him. So they left Harold sitting in a corner of the hut. They didn't talk to him or take him outside anymore. Now and then, the doll grunted, but that was all. After a few days, they decided there was nothing to be afraid of. Maybe a mouse or some insects had gotten inside Harold and they were making those sounds. So Thomas and Alfred went back to their old ways. Each morning, they put Harold out in the garden, and each night they brought him back into the hut. When they felt playful, they joked with him. When they felt mean, they treated him as badly as ever. Then one night... Alfred noticed something that frightened him. Harold is growing, 
he said. I was thinking the same thing, Thomas said. Maybe it's just our imagination, Alfred replied. We've been up here on this mountain too long. The next morning while they were eating, Harold stood up and walked out of the hut. He climbed up on the roof and trotted back and forth like a horse on his hind legs. All day and night long, he trotted like that. In the morning, Harold climbed down and stood in a far corner of the pasture. The men had no idea what he would do next. They were afraid. They decided to take the cows down into the valley that same day. When they left, Harold was nowhere in sight. They felt as if they had escaped a great danger and began joking and singing. But when they had gone only a mile or two, they realized they had forgotten to bring the milking stools. Neither one wanted to go back for them, but the stools would cost a lot to replace. There really is nothing to be afraid of, they told one another. After all, what could a doll do? They drew straws to see which one would go back. It was Thomas. I'll catch up with you, he said, and Alfred walked on towards the valley. When Alfred came to a rise in the path, he looked back for Thomas. He did not see him anywhere, but he did see Harold. The doll was on the roof of the hut again. As Alfred watched, Harold kneeled and stretched out a bloody skin to dry in the sun. <laughs>